Hi, everyone. My name is Fonim Topulu, and I am the OPR interviews editor, as well as a third year history and politics student at Balliol College, Oxford. Um, we're so lucky to have with us today um, Tariq Ali, a political activist and prolific writer on a vast area of subjects ranging from UK politics, the left, India, Pakistan, as well as Islam and imperialism, among many other topics. He is also a regular contributor to journals such as The Guardian, The New Left Review, and The London Review of Books. Having studied at our very own University of Oxford, he then went on to have a life that is endlessly fascinating, which I only wish we had time to delve into, but um, probably do not. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mr. Ali. Very good to be with you. I've not heard of this magazine before. I'm glad it exists. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'd like to start off by discussing your most recent work, The 40-Year War in Afghanistan, A Chronicle Foretold, um, which was published just this October, making it extremely relevant and up-to-date. Um, I'd like to start off by asking you about this quote that um, you've written in the preface, which in which you say, it's sad that it took history 40 years to confirm my theses. I was wondering if you could elaborate on this statement as well as explain um, your focus on this 40 year period and what this tells us. <clears throat> well, um, I started following Afghanistan fairly closely uh, 40 years ago. Um, with the Soviet military intervention in that country, which I thought was going to be a disaster. And my initial reaction to it, the very day the intervention happened, I wrote about it uh, the following week. Um, and I said that two things were going to happen. A, the government in Afghanistan, which the Soviet Union was going in to support and strengthen, was unpopular in the country as a whole. Um, they had blotted their copybook too many times. They were engaged in violent factional struggles within their own ranks. And this had alienated people even in the cities, leave alone the countryside, where they didn't have much support. And that the Soviet Union would not be able to sort this out, and therefore their military intervention constituted a political disaster, and it would soon turn into a military disaster as well. A political disaster because they would now strengthen the most reactionary forces in Afghanistan, the religious right, their supporters globally, like the United States of America, to come in and try and teach the Russians a lesson. And uh, I said it would be a military disaster because it would, was going to be very difficult to defeat a majority of the people in Afghanistan once they had support from the West, that they would be forced to do what other powers do, which is use helicopter gunships, which is kill people, burn villages, and this wasn't going to get them anywhere. And uh, I was very strongly attacked by some people on the left uh, at the time, uh, who said that I was wrong, that this was a liberation by the Soviet Union, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Anyway, uh, unfortunately, I was proved right. And in the very second or third interview uh, essay in the book, there's an interview with 
the Brzezinski, Carter's national security advisor, who more or less admits years later that what I'd said, without obviously referring to me, uh, was absolutely correct. The Russia, the Americans, once the Russians went in and sent troops, the Americans said, hurrah, this is going to be our chance to really teach them a lesson and avenge uh, what they did to us in Vietnam. The, the big difference between Vietnam and Afghanistan is that the Vietnamese fought for themselves. There were no foreign troops there. The Chinese and the Soviet Union helped them with weaponry, and so did the Cubans. Uh, but in, in any event, the United States decided to go in there in a big way, which they did. And the book then unravels uh, what happened over the last 40 years, the withdrawal of the Russians, a very disciplined, timely withdrawal, late, but, you know, announced, and they carried it out, the inability of the transitional regime, uh, which the Russians left behind to function because of mega American and Pakistani military pressure to topple it, the birth of the Taliban, who set it up, why it was set up, how the United States and Pakistan supported it, the end of the civil war in Afghanistan, Taliban rule, 9-11, and the new war against Afghanistan. So it's all in there, really. And uh, yeah, uh, you know, I don't like to say this, but I was proved absolutely correct, as against many people who were arguing uh, strongly against me, both on the Soviet intervention and the NATO intervention in October uh, 2001. I said this wouldn't last. It couldn't last. There was no plan to fix anything at all, and it was going to be a total disaster. And there were people like Christopher Hitchens and others who said, this is great, this is a tremendous victory for freedom and democracy, and we've now sorted out the uh, Afghanistan problem forever. This is it, the Taliban will never rise again. People wrote that. So we, we are now 40 years later, a country destroyed, a people wrecked. I don't think anyone in the Western world, apart, apart from those with long memories in China who remember the Japanese invasion, very few of them left, and the subsequent civil war. <clears throat> but by and large, very few people in the Western world have any idea what it's like to be occupied by different foreign powers for 40 years and the effect this has on the psychology of a country and its people, on women, on children growing up under bombs, not being able to step out, their parents saying, don't go out on your own. You know, very few people know what this means, and the Afghans have suffered it. And we often talk about the people of Afghanistan ideologically, too ideologically, without seeing them as human beings. In the course of these wars, the Afghan people have almost been dehumanized.
Yeah, I think I think a lot of that also just generally has to do with the way that um, countries such as the US and countries like such as the UK talk about Afghanistan and what's going on there and what has been going on there. And I guess I wanted to ask you more specifically about these like narratives that are being constructed, um, which, you know, allow which allow these allow these countries to justify their interventions. Um, I was wondering whether you could tell us a bit about these narratives, because often they are what you mentioned around like liberation. Um, and I wanted to ask whether you think people are becoming increasingly less susceptible to these and whether there's going to be a bit more pushback against this kind of myth that the US is really, you know, through raising countries to the ground, what they're basically doing is like protecting their civil rights. Um, I wanted to hear your thoughts on this. You know, this goes back a long way, this type of propaganda that the West uses. <clears throat> it was used a great deal during the Second World War. Don't forget that. Obviously, the enemy were the Nazis and Hitler, and who could be for them? I mean, everyone supported the destruction of the Third Reich. Not everyone, but large numbers of uh, people. But what is very interesting uh, about that period is how, despite the fact that the central enemy was meant to be Germany, Italy, Japan, fascism, what the West did was towards the end of the, that war, they effectively said by their, through their actions and sometimes their words, that the real enemies are lodged in the resistance movement because we've defeated the Third Reich and now communists and leftists are rising and they have to be crushed. And uh, so two things happen. This was done in the name of democracy and freedom. 60%, 60, six, zero, of the Italian army, military, police, judiciary, civil service, that had served Mussolini loyally till the end was kept in place. In Germany, the figures were lower, <coughs> um, but still a lot of the key figures in the military intelligence, in civilian intelligence, in the judiciary, in the police force, who had served Hitler loyally, were kept in place. In Japan, the emperor, who had in fact justified the Second World War and played a major role uh, in supporting it, giving instructions to generals and admirals, had not turned an, a, a, a blind eye to what was done in the massacres that uh, took place in Nanjing, in China, amongst the worst massacres of the Second World War. If you leave aside the Judeo side, which should never be left aside, but if you just shift it for a bit, one of the worst massacres that was carried out in the Second World War was the massacre of committed by the Japanese, genocidal in its scope against the citizens, the women, the children the, uh, in, in Nanjing. Mass rape still plays, horrific, virtually ignored. And the emperor who watched and supported all this, let go. No one touched him. Why? Because they already had a new enemy in place. So the allies of freedom and democracy in many of these defeated countries were fascists. 
And so from the beginning, double standards were established. Those who support us are freedom lovers and democracy lovers. Those who are resisting us are our enemies and have to be smashed. And of course, you're sitting in Athens now interviewing me, but what Churchill did in Greece, uh, I've just finished writing a book on Churchill and his crimes, by the way, and one of the worst crimes that was committed uh, in Europe was in the crushing of the Greek resistance, which had majority support in Greece. Very a, a history which has almost been wiped out. Even on the Greek left, people say, yes, it was horrible. Let's not talk about it. But I've just been researching it for a, a chapter on what happened to Greece in the Second World War. And what Churchill wanted to happen, basically, they, they didn't want a Greek resistance that they couldn't control. And the way they dealt with the resistance was horrific. Chopped, executed people, their heads were put on poles and put outside prison camps. It's one of the most horrific things that happened in Europe after the, towards the last years of the Civil War. So this is the West. This is how they operate. Sorry to have a long preamble, but I think I do this because there is a continuity between what they did during the Second World War, what they did during the Cold War. They talk now about chemical warfare. Horrific, this factory was making, could have made chemical weapons, Clinton said against the factory in the Sudan, bomb it. But chemical weapons were used by the United States during the Korean War. Germ warfare was used by the United States during the Korean War. Chemical weapons were used against Vietnam during the war the United States fought in Vietnam. Prisoners were tortured. So when similar things happen in Iraq, people say horrible, shocking. Well, yeah, they are. But what people tend to forget is that this has all happened before. And I'll never forget, there was a literary festival in Chicago, I think, and people were going on about the news coming out of Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq, that how prisoners had been sexually tortured and assaulted both by men and by women serving in the US Army. And suddenly an old guy, my age, but old, yeah, stood up in America, white America, and said, hey guys, I'm a US former US Marine. I served in the Vietnam War and I'm going to describe an incident to you which makes the torture in Iraq seem like a picnic. Pin drop silence. And he said, we captured two liberation, uh, National Liberation Front prisoners. We wanted them to tell us where their camp was. They refused. So we disemboweled one of the prisoners while the other watched and told the other prisoner, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't give us the location of your camp. He refused as well. So we disemboweled him too and threw them in a pit to die. Now, <clears throat> how many people know that? 
how many young people who get worked up uh, about uh, you know relatively trivial matters today have any idea how the world they are defending or you know ignoring what it has done, and so Afghanistan and the reaction to Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan, I thought was pretty pathetic in the in Europe at any rate, with most of the liberal papers saying, oh, shock, horror, the Guardian and the FT, and the uh, French and German and Spanish press to a certain extent, shock, horror, he's withdrawn. The shock and horror is not for the, it's that, you know, we were liberating the country, and look, he's interrupted it, but it soon became clear as the, you know, everyone was discussing Afghanistan, what had actually been going on. It had become the largest center for narco tra traffic. During Taliban rule, 20, 25% of the world's uh, heroin traffic went through Afghanistan. After 20 years of US occupation and NATO occupation, backed by the entire European Union and Britain, 90% of the world's heroin trade goes through Afghanistan. That is the one big gain, if you like, for capitalism. It's become an exporting country. So, so I get that the fact that like a lot of people such as, you know, the ordinary person is kind of left in the dark about these atrocities. But then how, how do the people who are there on the ground who are committing these things, who are making these decisions, how do they justify? Do you genuinely think that they believe that, you know, they're, they're freeing this country? Do you think they believe in this like clash of civilizations narrative, like, you know, that's steeped in Islamophobia or, or, you know, or do you just think, I guess it's their jobs and does it, and I guess the fact that shooting a drone is a lot easier because you're not actually have to be there. You could just do it from your office in wherever in the States you're based. Like, you know, just to piggyback off of what you've been talking about. Well, I mean, if for those who use drones and press the button, they could be doing it from Greece, Britain, Texas. It doesn't matter to them. It's just the pressing of a button. And, um, you know, or from a helicopter way up in the sky, you know, they suddenly see something. That's what Julian Assange uh, published, that video, horrific video with U.S. pilots laughing. Should we take them out? They look like a family. Oh, well, they look like terrorists to me. They look like, shoot them. And then laughing, we got them. But this is why Assange is being punished, because he gave a provided a counter narrative to that provided in the bulk of the Western uh, media. Oh, sorry about that. I have a rival. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I also wanted to ask. Um, I guess, you know, we've been talking about these like narratives and you're a bit skeptical of like, you know, um, a lot of the justifications that are given behind why countries such as the US and more recently China, something you've pointed out, China's started to branch, branch out into Afghanistan. Um, I was wondering what you thought the real motivations behind these countries were um, in um, having this like influence um, and this inter these interventions in the Middle East. Is it resources? Is it power? Is it after 9-11? Was it revenge? Like... 
it's very different in, in the case of China. And I, I think it's wrong to compare China to the United States in that regard. The United States now is the only empire that exists in the world. It's the most powerful country in terms of its military strength and its technological strength. It carries on developing uh, weapons. Now, why did they go into Iraq and try and destroy the Middle East, which they've done to a certain extent? I think two reasons. One is that they felt they could do it. They could get away with it. There was no other power at that time to challenge them. The Soviet Union had collapsed or was on, yeah, the Soviet Union had uh, collapsed. Its politics were in a total in total chaos. Uh, the Chinese were at that time only interested in doing their own thing, building China, developing it, introducing capitalism in China. So the United States felt that this transition period uh, was of extreme importance to them to assert their hegemony. The American empire has never been like the European empires, or rarely. I mean, it's true they, 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 they occupied the Philippines and they created mayhem in Central America, but on a global scale, they have preferred to assert their influence through a combination of economic aid, military strength, and finding a relay in the country concerned that basically supports them. And, and creating a network of security pacts in which to put in all these countries who are working for them. Uh, NATO being one of them, they created some in, in uh, Asia uh, in the, during the Cold War in the 50s and 60s, CETO, CENTO, uh, etc. Now everything has been centralized by NATO. Um, so they thought that how are we going to assert our hegemony in what had become a unipolar world? And the method they chose was A, to do it with pressure behind the scenes. Uh, they promised, just to take you through the examples, they promised Gaddafi to reward him, accept him into the international community, what they called <laughs> Uh, their supporters, and he abandoned nuclear, all his nuclear ambitions. Uh, then they went into Iraq. Basically, the, the purpose was to destroy any country in the Middle East, which asserted its own sovereignty. So whatever you think of these governments, Saddam, Gaddafi, Assad, they were sovereign states. They were not totally beholden to the United States. Saddam, ironically enough, more than most. Uh, and they were destroyed. Uh, there was no bit fundamental reason to do that, apart from putting in regimes which really worked for you. So the notion that was uh, dominant at the time of the Iraq wars, the war that Clinton waged on them via sanctions, the war that the Bush father and son waged on Iraq, uh, it was designed to break the stranglehold of the Ba'ath and destroy its army. 
which they came close to doing during the first Gulf War, but didn't. They destroyed a large chunk of it by killing ordinary soldiers, what American generals called a turkey shoot. Uh, and then Bush Jr. said he was going to do it all using 9-11 as the pretext, as Condoleezza Rice said at that time, we now have a chance to remodel the world as we want. And that is what they started doing, providing one disaster after another. Iraq wrecked. Its social infrastructure, the most advanced in the Middle East, wrecked. Nearly, they said, even the puppet governments put in place by the United States gave the figures there are 5 million orphans in Iraq. Well, if you even count one parent dead, that means the casualty figures in Iraq must be between a million and a half and 2 million people who have died. 5 million refugees from Iraq going into Syria, going into Lebanon, uh, a few into Jordan, destabilizing Syria, and even more so Lebanon. So this was the balance sheet, and what has come out of it, if you, if you look at it, nothing. The development of more extreme right-wing religious groups who believe <coughs> that secular liberals or secular socialists are incapable of defending us. There's only one way, which is to be just as ruthless as the United States. So there's shock and horror when they commit their crimes like ISIS, but not the same shock and horror when the United States kills even more people because it's supposedly our side. That's the world we live in today. And I, I, you know, we haven't spoken, but we've come to it. The way in which the West backs Israel totally crush all Palestinians' aspirations to even a tiny bit of sovereignty and independence is watched by people. They're helpless, they can't do anything, but that doesn't mean they're not embittered and angry. And we haven't seen the end of it as yet. Yeah, and I, I kind of want to, I kind of want to like follow up on that point you made that you know they've basically achieved nothing. Like their puppet governments almost inevitably always like fail, and a lot of their intervention breeds like a lot of hatred towards the U.S. So, um, and this is not only true for the Middle East, but it's especially true for the Middle East. So, I was wondering, are they ever like going to learn, and are they going to change their approach from a less like heavy-handed, hard power, just like you know, um, bumbling kind of approach, or are we just going to see them, you know, continuing with violence to face things such as uh, the Taliban threat? Well, let's let me answer that in two ways. Very few empires in history have changed their approach. And you can go back from the ancient Romans uh, to today, um, unless they're defeated, either in wars or through internal rebellions. Uh, the Greeks faced internal rebellions, the Romans <coughs> faced the invasion of the European tribes, which weakened the empire, so it had to shift effectively 
from uh, uh, Rome to Byzantium and then Constantinople. So, um, and you can come even down the way, the Chinese empire, of course, imploded. The Qing dynasty was on its last legs and the West began to uh, go in there. And the 21st century, uh, the 20th century European empires, Britain, the largest, France, Belgium, Germany, the weakest and smallest, um, all these uh, empires, though some of them exist in some shape or form, the French in Africa in particular, but most of these empires were defeated because they had become economically weak and they couldn't sustain the empire. And there was another empire in the distance rising. That was the United States. So the British Empire's days were numbered. They wouldn't have won the first or second world wars without the United States. And that applies to the, to the French as well. So the United States basically, when the European empires began to crumble, took over in their own way <coughs> what was left and then made it, you know, on one level they made it worse. They refused to permit actual democracy. For instance, the worst crimes committed by a European country, apart from the Judeo side, were committed in Africa by the Belgians in Congo. You know, between the, the scholarship on this states that between six to 10 million people, or some go even higher, were killed in the Congo under King Leopold's rule. Finally, when the Congolese managed to achieve their independence after the Second World War, elected a leader popular, not so, not even that radical, but anti-imperialist, oh, for obvious reasons, given what the Belgians had done to his country, the Americans couldn't tolerate him because of the Cold War and thought he was pro-Soviet, which is not the case. So they killed him. Patrice Lumumba killed in 1961. His dead body in the back of the CIA station chief's car being driven around seeing how to get rid of it, how to dump it. That is what happened in the Congo. So, you know, the takeover by the United States of the European empires didn't improve matters much. And we see that carrying on today. So there is the point I'm making is that they never collapse on their own. Either they're defeated in wars, and even when they're defeated in wars, there has to be some alternative waiting, which brings me to the second part of my answer to your question. Will the Chinese replace the United States? That is not their aim. Everything I've read from Chinese scholars I've spoken with, China does not want to become a rival empire to the United States uh, or the Europeans and behave like they did. 
Uh, I'm not saying they're beyond criticism, obviously not in their own country, but what they do. But so far, what they have done abroad is effect, uh, effectively try and create a defensive wall, if you like, <coughs> around themselves. They have developed their military strength, obviously. The United States has now formed a new alliance, antagonizing the French by taking away their submarine contracts from the uh, Australians and using the British and the Australians as they've used them since the Cold War as basically white nations defending white imperial interests on the globe. And the Chinese are very angry, but I don't think they're going to be provoked unless the US decides that they want to break up China. Then you could be in a very dangerous situation. What the um, NATO is doing in the Ukraine is equally shocking in my opinion. You know, you have a semi-fascist government whose heroes are all the people who fought with Hitler or whose forebears, fathers, grandfathers rather, fought with the Nazis during the Second World War. The, the people who fought with Hitler are worshipped by the current government and many of those people around it. So what I said to you earlier about the Second World War wasn't just an abstraction. We see it happening now in the Ukraine, and the United States wants to bring the Ukraine into NATO and possibly the European Union, because the two go together. No European Union country individually has the right to its own foreign policy. I mean, uh, that's not on. If you look at how Cyprus capitulated in Greece on every single question after he defied the referendum, which he had called for in Greece, went back on it and then, you know, working with Israel, working with NATO, supporting wars, just appalling. But that is... That is uh, uh, the, the way they are functioning. So it doesn't look as if they're going to be uh, defeated uh, easily. <clears throat> but, and this is a very important but, the big change that has taken place in the 21st century has been a shift, an economic shift, that the world market has shifted eastwards. And China, Taiwan, Singapore, the Chinese Commonwealth, not recognized as such, but basically is the largest producer of essential goods and commodities for the whole world. You can travel anywhere in the world, and it will be difficult not to come across something which doesn't say made in China. So uh, what you see is a big shift taking place. Now, is this shift of necessity going to transform itself into a military power like Britain did before Victorian times and then during the Industrial Revolution in a huge way, or the United States did to intervene on the global stage during the First and Second World Wars.
Uh, it's difficult to answer with certainty, but my own uh, analysis with Chinese are not going to go down that route unless they are provoked in a way that some of us can't even imagine. And that is why the, it's necessary uh, to have an alternative means of information. You know, the big criticism the West used to make of the Russians and the Eastern Europeans and the Chinese, they've got uh, one-dimensional media, it's just state propaganda. Well, you look at the BBC and CNN and the uh, liberal papers, I don't talk about the right-wing papers, and the shift that has taken place. I mean, The Guardian is virtually unrecognizable as a liberal paper. Usually, it's, uh, home news is usually trash, celebrity, uh, obsessed, obsessed with celeb lives, hardly cover what's going on in most parts of the country. And it's foreign news is provided by the foreign office. Um, and they, they do this on most global issues. That is how they operate. In, and so the media now in the West is a central pillar of what I call the extreme center, which is the uh, supporting capitalism at home, without questions asked, going along with its twists and turns and supporting wars abroad. Who opposes it? Sometimes there may be a mild criticism, oh, let's not go too far. And in Afghanistan, you saw it very clearly and how they thought Biden had gone too far, the liberal press, all over. Because it made all these governments and the newspapers that supported them look stupid. We backed the Afghan war. We promised it was going to be liberation, democracy, freedom. Well, the answer to that is you were wrong. You were either misled or you preferred to mislead yourselves and then actually come and began to believe your own lies. It's not Biden's fault or the fault of the Afghans who wanted you out. So this aspect of life now is very important, which is why so many young people basically don't read the newspapers or watch the mainstream news. It's, it's quite high. Some are apolitical and just not interested. Some just don't believe what they read because it's been proved wrong so many times, which is why, I mean, I know everyone's attacking the internet, but the internet offers a space which remains important. I mean, I know, and so do many others, which websites to go to, and they're not your typical ones if there's a new war where to go to. And if you don't know, someone will send you an email saying, here's the link to this website. And you go and read something <clears throat> which you may not agree with everything, but is a serious analytical essay on what is going on. Mm. I kind of I do want to talk about the aftermath of all of this as well in terms of um, something that is getting quite a bit of coverage right now is the fact that Afghanistan is currently facing economic collapse and mass starvation as an outcome of 
um, people of these like Western countries and foreign countries no longer, um, you know, providing them with these like injections and this kind of cash flow. And I'm wondering whether you thought that these countries had this kind of moral obligation um, to continue supporting Afghanistan and to kind of clean up this mess that they've made um, or, or like what your thoughts are and what's currently happening because they've entirely withdrawn to the extent where it's probably quite problematic. Yeah, I, I would be lying if I said I found that deeply shocking. They've done this time and time again. Um, and I think... Uh, the fact that they've done it so openly and shamelessly in Afghanistan, and there's been very little response from liberals who more or less supported them, is revealing in its own way as to how effective uh, their propaganda has been and the demonization of opponents, even though they've been engaged since 2015 in regular serious talks with the Taliban to try and find a way out. So why were you talking to them if they're such completely horrible, despicable people? Um, so yeah, they, they've done that. Uh, they've uh, frozen the funds which belong to Afghanistan. Um, and I think the Afghans are now <clears throat> dependent on other countries helping them. I haven't followed the most recent events, so I can't tell you how much money they're getting from the various neighboring countries and what China is, uh, how China is helping. But China does have this capacity now to build or help build a social in infrastructure through its Belt and Roads Initiative, which is taking place and helping other parts of the world as well. It may not be 100% satisfactory, but it's better than nothing. And so the fact, as I outline in my book on China um, and the first official visit by the new government in Afghanistan, was not to fly to Saudi Arabia, but to fly to China, I regard as a step forward. And the second thing that has happened is that the Iranians have learned the lessons of what it meant. Uh, they, they had this original idea that in order to defend their own sovereignty and their own interests, they could play the Americans. I mean, it's always a crazy idea that to try and think you can play the Americans. The United States acts in its own interests, nine times out of all, 10 times out of 10 usually. Uh, and the Afghans, uh, the Iranians backed the United States in Iraq, backed them, and they backed them in Afghanistan. And that Iranian decision to back them in Afghanistan led to horrors on both sides. Uh, Sunni Shia clashes, Pashtun Hazara clashes. These so far have been brought under control. Why? Mainly because the Iranians have changed their policies and are talking regularly behind the scenes with the Taliban. So we will find out, I think, in six months more accurately uh, as to what exactly is going on. And then the other thing is this, that the demand for heroin goes up and not down. And that the West hasn't destroyed, it's still there.
So I, I'm assuming that the money coming in from the heroin trade is now going to the state and they're cutting down on middlemen as much as possible and using it to sort of feed their people. I'm hoping this is the case. At least something good comes out of this sort of horrific uh, uh, trade. But I don't know is the honest answer. Well, I have another two-pronged, um, just quick speculative question. It's okay, it's okay, that's fine. Um, so the first the first part of this question is regarding the women. Um, obviously, something that you know is that, you know, presidents such as Obama and Bush often use women as symbols to be like, oh, you know, we have to protect them because they're going to you know, suffer under the Taliban or, or under, you know, um, the Islamists. And currently, and it's what, you know, it's what is called like the militarization of non of civilian women in feminist era. But I guess I was wondering um, how you thought that this would progress, because the Taliban is currently showing that they're bringing back a lot of the policies that they had in the 90s. Um, but they've claimed that these are temporary. So I was wondering if there was anything to that. And the second part of this question, which is shorter, is you mentioned in um, a previous interview that Afghanistan is not a state that you can easily take over if people are opposed to you for geographic and you know other historical reasons. I was wondering if you thought that the Taliban would be able to um, overcome this crisis of legitimacy that they're currently facing and be able to maintain power for enough time. And these are kind of linked, I guess. Yeah. On the first part of your question, uh, the condition of women in Afghanistan never changed fundamentally during the 20-year occupation. Uh, this is something which has been very deliberately concealed by most journalists, with the exception of an American journalist, Anand Gopal, who had a very striking piece on this in The New Yorker, not in any daily paper, but in The New Yorker, uh, in which he showed conclusively that the condition of the overwhelming majority of women in Afghanistan had not changed at all uh, during the NATO occupation carried out in alliance uh, with the Northern Alliance, so-called at that time, whose attitude to women was no different than that of the Taliban. That's the first point. Uh, some things changed in three or four cities with the dispatch of NGOs from the West to spend lots of money. And they did build schools, they did educate some women, but it really was a drop in the ocean. I'm very glad that there are a layer of educated middle-class young women in these cities. And I hope they will play a role in the future. But for the majority of women, very little was, uh, was done. Now, two points need to be made on that. That the difference between attitudes to women in terms of what they are allowed to do or not do, you can see very clearly in two different Muslim Islamic republics, Afghanistan and Iran. In Iran, there are restrictions on rituals and uh, what how the head cover should be worn. In that, it's the other side of what the French do uh, and some other European countries. They say you can't wear the hijab 
and the Iranians and and the others say you have to wear the hijab. So where's the difference? You know, in both cases, women are being interfered with and told what to wear and what not to wear. I'm opposed to both. I'm not in favor of banning the hijab and I'm not in favor of forcing women to wear clothes they don't wish to wear. Uh, that has always been my position. Now, um, the, the uh, sort of attached point is that quite a lot of the customs in Afghanistan and the Pashtun areas are linked not so much to Islam, which apart from one or two uh, injunctions <clears throat> is, in my opinion, permits the rulers to do, do as they wish with these problems. I mean, uh, it's a patriarchal religion, Islam, as is Christianity of every variety and as is Judaism. That's when these, <clears throat> how these religions developed. All the women goddesses were erased. Uh, the Christians found that was a problem recruiting more people to their cause, so they reinvented a Christian goddess in the shape of the Madonna. But the others didn't feel the need to do that. So both Judaism and Islam tackled with the question of how to do it, but let's not go, go into that. So tribal customs in these areas are very patriarchal, much more so than the religion. And these patriarchal tribal customs, which exist in different shapes or forms in old traditions in many parts of the world, Europe too, by the way, um, and uh, uh, you know parts of Africa which are not Muslim. It's not a Muslim tradition, uh, for instance, to have uh, women, female circumcision. It's not an Islamic tradition. It's a tribal custom. And so <clears throat> you have many, many rules like that which are imposed on women. And the only way out of this is for women to fight back, I mean, which they've done well. Uh, in parts, in parts, not all of, but in parts of Kurdistan, where the Kurd people, the Kurds, as it's pronounced in English, have um, uh, have had progressive organizations, both in Syria and in Turkey, and encouraged women to participate in village life, in political life, in military life, and. <clears throat> and not satisfactorily, but they've done that. So a lot depends <coughs> on the character of the tribe concerned. Um, and in the Pashtun areas, uh, this is now happening in parts of Pakistani, uh, Pashtun parts of Pakistan, where a new organization has just grown up, the Pashtun Self-Defense Organization, which encourages um, all this and women are playing a role and are not being helped by the state or the government, by the way. Uh, the third answer to the question is that in the entire region, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India, the condition of women isn't great. The level of rapes, registered rapes, 
every week is much, much higher in India than in Pakistan or Afghanistan. Uh, in Pakistan and Afghanistan, officially, uh, these things are punished, by the way, in, according to the constitution. But patriarchy goes unchallenged. So if a guy says to his daughter, who pleads with him, Dad, let me go and, you know, I've got an entry into a U.S. university. Let me go and finish my studies, and when I come back, we discuss marriage. He says, no, you'll marry the person we've chosen for you now. Get married, then go, otherwise you won't be safe. She says no, and he shoots her dead. That's happened in Pakistan some months ago. Horrific. Uh, and the government does nothing. In India, you have on a much, much larger scale, you have the horrific caste system which means that the delites, the so-called untouchables, as they were once referred to, delete women are raped regularly, often with the police around, if not watching. And the figures are horrific, much higher rape figures for these women, most of whom are so ashamed that they don't go and report the rape to their male relatives, uh, make India the world's leader in rape. South Africa too. I don't know whether it still is, but between South Africa and India, there was little to choose from in the, on, on, on the level of women's bodies being violated against their wills. So it's a horrific situation all around. And all I ask is it's put into proportion. We have to be critical, equally critical of all those, well, uh, women, you know, and in support of all these women who are suffering. Where is the model for Afghanistan? The West is a remote entity which has invaded them several times. They don't trust the West. Uh, <clears throat> and that doesn't help with Western leaders or their wives whinging on, you know. Uh, Bush, when saying farewell to Angela Merkel uh, lately, said, I'm really upset about he was pretended tears in his eyes for those poor little girls we're leaving behind. And she must, she knows the answer, but she didn't hear what she should have said to Bush is, but we've been there 20 years. What have we done for these nice, beautiful little girls who you're shedding crocodile tears for? So it's that's 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 the situation. Um, no, that's there's so much to unpack there. I have one final question then for you, um, which is um, about. Basically, I want to ask, can, can military and humanitarian intervention in areas like the Middle East ever be justified? And, in the, and would it be justified in the condition where the ends were successful enough? Like if, if hypothetically you could enter and you could achieve all these aims of like democracy and protecting civil rights, would the end justify the means ever? Um, or, or would you still take this like, you know, very anti-imperialist stance and then a follow-up, yeah. Uh, I do not believe that imperialist intervention improves any country. Uh, 
It's much, much better for the country concerned, even if it takes much longer to develop its own organic resistance to get rid of its uh, leaders. When the people try and do that, it's imperialism who often goes to defend these leaders. So imperialism, I do not believe, has any part to play in uh, changing anything for the good when it intervenes either as NATO or within inverted commas as the international community. In the international community is a joke, a couple of words used effectively to conceal the fact and to mask the fact that it's the United States or NATO or both behind it. Now, that's one answer to the question of imperialist intervention. Are there, I'm trying to think of where I would support a temporary necessary intervention to save the lives of really millions of people, hundreds of thousands. I was not critical of the Vietnamese intervention to topple the Pol Pot regime in Cambodia. That was the only way to get rid of that regime. It was really destroying uh, the people. So I was in support of it, and they stayed, they got rid of the regime, and they left. They didn't occupy uh, that country um, as, uh, you know, uh, once the regime and its uh, remnants had been um, got rid of. But you compare that intervention to what the attitude of the United States was. They were opposed to that intervention. And so were its satellite states in the West. They didn't favor it. And they refused to recognize the new regime in Cambodia for many years. The Pol Pot regime was maintained in the United Nations with the backing of the West. So the other place where I would have thought a combined African intervention would have been useful is Rwanda, um, where it was obvious what was going on. Africa knew, the West knew, the French were of course heavily involved in it uh, in their own way. But the African countries who were involved should have gone and uh, Save the lives of the Tutsis uh, in that. So I would not have opposed that. I wouldn't have said that just doing that is, you know, a permanent solution, but it would have been something. And obviously, during the Second World War, because that's the question which comes up, I would have been in favor of fighting the Nazis. Uh, to topple the uh, Third Reich and that uh, regime. <clears throat> Ultimately, it happened with the, not by, it wasn't done by Britain, but Hitler was defeated and the Third Reich was defeated by the Russian armies. Uh, the battles at Stalingrad and Kursk broke the back, the spinal cord of the Third Reich and American military aid and uh, economic aid to the uh, Allies and to a certain extent to the Soviet Union during that war helped as well. So there you go. But by and large, in peacetime, I am opposed 
I am opposed to imperialist uh, uh, interventions. And no one can point out, okay, but you're wrong because we succeeded in Iraq, we succeeded in Syria, we succeeded in Libya. I mean, to topple Gaddafi and hand the country over effectively to three slightly nutty jihadi groups for heaven's sake, who does this help? Who does it help? Not the Libyan people. And it doesn't even help the West. I mean, they found some businessman in uh, some American campus, I think in Arizona, and made him prime minister. Well, it's a complete joke. It's a total and complete joke. So uh, I don't think that helps any more, by the way, since you're in Athens, that the uh, EU intervention helped Greece. I mean, once the press had capitulated, it was obvious to most of us, all my Greek friends and myself and others interested in Greece, that sooner or later this would pave the way for a triumph of the right in Greece, that that is the way. And okay, they banned the fascists, but mainly quite a lot of those who voted fascists have gone over to the traditional right. So it doesn't, you know, interventions, economic, certainly, but military definitely don't help the country they claim they're designed to help. By the right, are you referring to the current New Democracy Party or or like... Are, are you referring to further right than that or or in recent history or something else in recent history? Sorry, I didn't hear that. Sorry, I was wondering when you were discussing the right in Greece, were you referring to the current New Democracy Party or like further right than that? Or were you no, further right than that as well? Oh, but you yeah. know, the, quite a lot of the people now, since the fascists have been banned, uh, have been voting for New Democracy. I mean, what else do they do? or not voting at all. And we have similar far-right groups in France, in Italy, in Spain. The whole of Europe, and you know, one has to mention Germany as well, that all these countries, you've seen a big decline of the left and the rights of the uh, right and far-right groups. That's another discussion we can have some other time. That is another discussion <laughs> itself. That's true. It's just being a bit self-indulgent there. Um, well, thank you so, so, so much for all of this. Thank you for agreeing to speak with us. This has been incredibly enlightening. Um, well, if you need anything more, get in touch, okay? If you need follow-ups, email.